I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Check engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 268. And today on the show, I'm joined by Terry Drury of Drury Outdoors to discuss the dream scenario of buying and building your own piece of whitetail paradise. All right, welcome to the Wire Tunt Podcast brought to you by Onyx, and we've got a good one for you today, uh, so I'm not going to beat around the bush. i got to believe that most of you are familiar with Terry Drury uh, for, for many reasons, but uh, maybe one of those being the fact that I did a podcast with him and the Drury's for several years, the 100% Wild Podcast, and he's been on this show in the past too. But if you're not familiar with Terry, he is one of the co-founders of Drury Outdoors, which is one of the most successful media companies in the hunting space and the host of many, many different shows and videos over the years. And most important probably to everyone listening, he's a very experienced and successful whitetail hunter and property manager. Terry has owned and improved and managed many different whitetail properties over the years, and he's killed a whole lot of big mature bucks because of that. So today, of the many different things we could talk about with a guy like Terry, we're going to focus just on this aspect of land. You know, a lot of us, including myself, would dream of someday owning a deer hunting property. And Terry has lived that dream. But he started out very modestly. You know, he got a very small property to start and he slowly built his way up over the years to now having a great big, really well-managed property. So today we're going to talk to him about, you know, how any one of us can start that process of finding and maybe owning some hunting ground and then building that into something pretty special. That is our topic for today. On top of all that, Terry also shares with us the details of uh, a pretty insane giveaway, actually, that they're doing over at Drury Outdoors, in which they're literally giving away a farm. Like, literally, they're giving a hunting property away to one of you guys or gals or to one of their other thousands of fans across the country. So you definitely don't want to miss out on the details of how to get in on that one. It's pretty crazy. So with all that out of the way, we don't have a pregame show today. So without further ado, I think we should just get to chatting with Terry Drury. All right, with me now on the line 
a repeat guest that I'm excited to have here. We've got Terry Drury. Welcome back to the show, Terry. Hey, Mark. How we doing? Good to I'm, be back. Yeah, I'm doing well. Glad that we can be chatting again. I, I miss our frequent conversations when we were doing 100% wild, so this is this is nice to get to catch up a little bit. I know. You kept Matt on the straight and narrow, and now we're <laughs> now Mark and I are faced with that task. <laughs> That's no easy task. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> it does seem that he's up to some good work because um, he, he was telling me the other day about a very interesting new uh, initiative of sorts you guys are working on, which is kind of what um, gave me the idea of having this podcast, which is today mainly what I want to talk about, Terry, is talking all through different ideas and ways of kind of building a whitetail paradise, how to take a property and turn it into just a mecca for deer hunting and for deer. Um, you've had a lot of experience doing that. And it seems like, from what I understand, you guys are now going to help someone else live out that dream and actually give somebody a farm. Is that is that true, Terry? It seems kind of unbelievable. Um, is that true? And can you talk to me a little bit about, about what you guys are doing and why? Well, I think that is the... Uh probably the maybe the feeling that everybody gets is that if it's too good to be, be true it's too good to be true but in this particular scenario it's uh it is the truth and it's reality we're going to be giving a 60 acre farm away and uh this is just a a gesture uh on mark and i and matt and taylor we, we wanted to say thank you we're celebrating our 30th year being in in the outdoor industry and being in business and uh, it's it's more of a thank you to all of our fans and everybody that supported us throughout the years. And uh, we want to take a farm and we want to trick it out. We want to put our footprint on it, our thumbprint, and we want to uh, turn it over and give it to somebody so that they can enjoy it with their family for years to come. And uh, it's one that Mark and I looked at and did and did some searching quite quite for over a long period of time, and and finally found the one we wanted and said, let's uh, this is the farm. It has a little bit of everything. And when we go into a parcel or look at a parcel of property, we want to make sure that it's got all the elements that we're looking for in water, cover, uh, you know, spots that we can put food plots in and hang tree stands, different access, you know, and we always have wind direction in our back of our mind when we look at those spots. So it had a little bit of everything. It had a mixture. And that's really what we were after. And that's what this farm entails. So some lucky winner is going to end up with that. And hopefully they'll be able to use it for years to come. Wow. So, so number one, am I ineligible to, uh, to apply to win this farm? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> number I don't know. Two, you have to read our terms of service. <laughs> yeah. Let's check that out. And, and number two, um, how can other people enter to, to win this farm? How does that all work? Well, they can go, uh, you know, into either Google play or the app store and, or the, uh, or, uh, you know, download, download the DeerCast app. It's a free app that they can download on either an iPhone or on an Android. And uh, all you got to do is go into Google Play or the Play Store, download the app for free, and then you'll see there's some information in there that gets you to the spot where you can download uh, this entry form. It's very, very simple. You have to log in and, and give an email address and a password so that we can get a hold of you. If you win it, we got to be able to contact you somehow. So uh, they put their email address and a password in there and then they are automatically entered to win uh, whenever they enroll or subscribe to DeerCast. So in addition, in addition to that giveaway that we're doing in December of the, uh, the, the grand prize, which is the farm, there's a monthly prize that, that some lucky winner is going to win each and every month. At the end of the month, 
you know, we're going to do the same thing. There'll be an email that's randomly drawn and, and, uh, we'll contact that person and they will, they'll find out that they've won a great, great prize package that many of our sponsors are participating in and making, uh, making it a, a really, really nice giveaway feature each and every month up until the grand prize there in December. Well, yeah, I actually did go and mess around with the the entry form just to see what it took myself, and and I did enter. So I don't know if if I end up winning, I probably shouldn't take anything, but um, I thought I should at least try it out myself, and um, and it was really easy, especially if you're already using DeerCast. Uh, and if you're not using DeerCast, and this is just me speaking here, this isn't any kind of promotion. This is just, I honestly found it useful this past year. I, I used it a lot. I looked at it both from uh, looking at the weather features and the prediction features. That was, was really interesting and handy. And then you guys are just putting a lot of interesting content out there. I loved being able to follow what you and the whole team were up to, the kind of success you were having. And uh, having it all there in, a, in an easy kind of app feed to kind of scroll through whenever I was, whenever I had a few extra minutes, it um, it was it was very impressive. You guys have done a a, a slam dunk job with it. So if you're not using DeerCast, highly recommend it. And now you're going to get to enter this uh, kind of remarkable giveaway, or not kind of absolutely remarkable giveaway. So um, I don't know. You guys continue to surprise and impress me, Terry. I'm. Uh, uh, I've got all sorts of work to do to try to keep up with the great work you guys are doing. Well, you know, we're just a couple of rednecks that like to deer hunt, so not necessarily app developers. So we we uh, it's been a learning curve. I'll be quite honest with you, but but the performance because we had run a beta test, you know, the previous fall just to kind of get some of the bugs worked out of it, and then uh, went full bore with the alpha test there this last fall, and it it worked quite well. We had a couple little changes that we wanted to make, and we tweaked a few things here in the off-season already on the algorithm and uh, just trying to, you know, kind of hone it in and get it fine-tuned the best we can. And what we found last year, last fall, that it was, you know, about 85 to 90% accurate for instances of undisturbed whitetails, and, the, and that's the clincher. You know, what you don't know is if somebody went, you know, through there on a four-wheeler or if coyotes ran through or dogs ran through, you know, and if they're disturbed, obviously a lot of that goes out the window. But if they're undisturbed and they're in their own element, by golly, it's pretty doggone accurate. And there's uh, 12 influencers that go into this algorithm and, and uh, you know, I won't bore you with, with all the details, but it's, uh, you know, departure from, from average temperature, it's barometric pressure, it's uh, wind speed, it's cloud cover, it's moon phase. There's just a, a ton of, of elements that go into it. We call them influencers. And then those are weighted accordingly. Each one of those is a different weight for each of the 13 individual phases because barometric pressure in phase one has a different effect than barometric pressure in phase 13. Wind, uh, wind speed has you know, one effect in phase two than it does in phase eight and so on down the line. Every one of them is a little bit different. And, and Mark and I are so analytical. We've been keeping tabs on this for many, many years and then trying to, you know, refine it each and every year. And I think we've cracked the code, so to speak, to where we've optimized your time in a, in a tree or in a blind and said, you know what, your odds of seeing deer during daylight hours and particularly mature deer uh, during daylight hours are, are really good this time of the day. And that was really what we wanted to do. It's not the cure-all, end-all. What it is is another tool to, or another, 
you know, just a, maybe a pawn in your, in your bag of tricks. You know, you've got rattling antlers and you've got grunt tubes and you've got all the other different elements uh, and access and, and so on and so forth as far as deer hunting. But we wanted to have something for a hunter to be able to optimize his time. And we think we've done that, and, and we've gotten a lot of terrific stories have come back where guys say, you know what, I wasn't going to go hunting. Deer cast said, great, I went, I killed the biggest deer of my life. And that's, those, are the, those are the accolades that we want to hear from, from different hunters. But if, if nothing else, we want guys to start thinking about those different elements and say, hey, I'm, and, and some people don't want to do that. Some might just enjoy going and sitting down by a tree and saying, hey, I'm enjoying the elements out here. And that's fine, too. But for that guy that wants to learn a little more and say why are deer moving during daylight hours on some days and they're not on others, then that's what this is for. And Mark and I did, oh, I want to say 145 or 150 different interviews for each influencer for each phase so that you can kind of go into it for that serious guy and, and kind of pick our brains and, and see exactly how we made those decisions. But it's been it's been. Uh, somewhat successful so far and we just want people to use it to their advantage yeah yeah i certainly think you achieved those goals you mentioned and for anyone listening right now if you want some more details about about the tools within the app and then all the kind of underlying theories that helped kind of build up this algorithm and, and this predictive capability that you guys have now in there, we did a podcast back in august i think with mark drury um and it was we went very, very, very in-depth on all these types of factors. It's it's absolutely fascinating. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, definitely go back and listen for that one. Um, it, it just is very, very interesting. So, Terry, that brings me then back to the original uh, part of, of the DeerCast giveaway, that being this farm you guys are going to give away. Um, I kind of curious using that as an example to see if you might be able to help me out a little bit, Terry, because I'm I'm slowly approaching the possibility of maybe trying to buy my first farm, um, small little piece, and I don't know if that's a this year thing or a next year thing or further down the line, but I'm at least starting to really start the gears turning in my head how how to possibly do this someday. Um, so I'm kind of curious when you guys were looking for this farm, trying to find the right piece that you're going to be able to work on for a few years and then give away. What were the things, and you did kind of allude to these already, but I'd like to hear even more detail. What were the specific things you were looking at when you were trying to choose the right property? What were those most important criteria? How did you verify those things to, to make this decision? Well, we've got a couple of aspects here that you covered, and I want to touch on both of those because they're both very, very important uh, you know, particularly when it comes to purchasing a piece of dirt for yourself, that one gets me excited, more excited than probably shooting a big deer. I'm, I'm not kidding you because, uh, you know, everyone is, is capable and able to do that if they play their cards right. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But looking at the parcel and picking a parcel that we wanted to give away, and again, I'll reiterate, that was a thank you to for 30 years of being in this outdoor industry, we're some of the most blessed people on earth. We're humbled every day, and we just cannot uh, thank people that have supported us anymore. And we said, you know what, how can we do that? How can we give back? And this was this was an idea or concept that we came up with. And we said, all right, now let's put it in motion. Let's get the wheel going. And so Mark and I, you know, looked and researched and looked at several parcels of property 
And uh, we wanted to get one that was big enough where you could, you know, get four, five, six, seven different stand locations on it and where you could access it easily with different wind directions on northerlies, southerlies, easterlies, westerlies. We wanted to make sure that a guy was able to get in there and hunt it without running the deer out of there. So it has that. And then we wanted to make sure that it had every single element that we would want on one of our own farms. And we found a piece that fit that mold. And uh, it's got, you know, a decent mass crop on it where it's got some white oaks and it's got some red oaks and it's got a a few shingles and some pins. So there was a a decent mass crop on it. It's also got some cover, uh, some cedar thickets and some briars and some brush where you think a, a buck might go in there and lay down or bed or he may drag a doe in there during the rut. And then it's also got a, a really, really beautiful pond location kind of down in a little bitty valley uh, that was that's pretty decent size. It was loaded with tracks and rubs in and around this pond. And then below the pond, it's got a little bitty bottom field that's absolutely perfect for uh, a food plot. So we wanted to get one up on a ridge top and one down below. The one down below, you'll have to be a little bit more careful about wind. Uh, but it just had everything. It had all of those elements that we were looking for. Uh, it's fenced. We did a little work on the gates. We wanted to make sure that it was gated and, and uh, kind of secure and posted and all those other things. But we then went through the, through the uh, efforts of saying, and now where would we hang a set? And we did that. We looked at it and we said, okay, you can get in here on what wind direction. Let's pick a spot or two. And we did that. We went ahead and hung some sets. So this thing is literally uh, ready to go. Whoever wins it, uh, will be able to climb up and hunt. We, we planted food plots in there last year and a first year planting. They did okay, but I'll be perfectly honest. They didn't do great. So we're going to put a little more fertilizer. We're going to add a little more lime. We're going to sweeten the pot just a little bit and make sure that this thing is, uh, exactly how we would want it. So we want those food plots to do a little bit better this year, but sometimes those first year plantings, depending on the acidity of the soil, or a little bit tougher to get started. So we're going to work a little harder at that and, uh, and try and get those up to snuff this year so that whoever wins, it'll be able to sit down and say, you know what, this is a, this is a nice piece of property had reconics cameras on it. We were, uh, catching, catching a few deer coming through some decent bucks that we said, you know what, here's an up and comer. Here's one we'd shoot and so on and so forth. Several does where if a guy's looking at it and saying, you know what, all I want to do is put meat in the freezer. We've got that too. It's got all of those different elements. So, uh, we think that we have found the right piece. Uh, you know, it's just, it's a matter of hunting it smart because it is only 60 acres. So you can't be in there romping and stomping around every day, uh, for fear of running some deer out of there. So we want to try and make it where it's a little Mecca, a little home core area for a few deer and, uh, something that you can hold a pocket or a family, a doe family in there, and then catch these bucks that might be traveling uh, from every direction. And, and when we looked at it, there's some really, really big blocks of timber in two different directions. And then there's some ag on uh, other directions. So we looked at it and said, you know what, this is one of those spots where it could be a really, really good travel corridor through the rut. And, uh, you know, we just looked at it from every aspect. So I think whoever ends up with it will be, uh, should be happy, you know, if they spend the time there and they hunt it smart. Now, with that said, purchasing a parcel of property and my eyes lit up whenever you said that the only thing I can highly recommend is sooner rather than later. And everybody's in a pinch. We're, we're always in a financial struggle 
no matter what time of year, no matter what year, no matter what week, we're always looking, okay, how are we going to pay the electric bill, the car bill, the insurance, our grocery bill, and all of those other things. Every person in America looks at that stuff. But with that said, in lieu of buying that new car or in lieu of buying that boat or a new set of golf clubs or season tickets or whatever, you know, any of those, uh, you know, extracurricular items, why don't you take that payment that you were going to make for a new car, new boat, set of clubs, season tickets, all those other elements and make a farm payment. And, and that's how you start. You always start small and do not get too emotionally attached and then turn around and flip it, hang on to it for a year or two, you know, get it to where you think it's, it's reached its maximum or optimum uh, capacity as far as a, a little deer Mecca and then turn around and flip it. And then take that, you know, that nominal or marginal amount of profit that you make on it, instead of, you know, uh, splurging and, and going on a, a trip to the Bahamas, then take that and roll it into another parcel of property. And if you start that at, a, at a, any age, and then you continue down that path, all of a sudden, when you get to where you want to be, whether it's 300 acres, 400 acres, 1,000 acres, whatever it may be, at some point you look up and you go, you know what, this is what I, was, this is what I uh, set out to do right here. And that's kind of what we did many, many years ago. Everybody always says, well, if I had your farm, I could kill big deer too. Well, by golly, for one thing, we're giving a farm away so they can do that. And for another thing, we started by buying small little bitty tracks. I started on a 53-acre piece over in Illinois and, uh, and rolled it and then just kept, kept the ball rolling. And that's, that's really how we got our start. We went to a bank, borrowed the money, made payments just like everybody else. And uh, if you kind of sacrifice those big frivolous things, you can end up owning the, the piece of dirt that you want. And historically, right now, land values are somewhat uh, moderate. And I'll say they've been in a little bit of a recession here for the last couple of years. And I watch this stuff fairly close. But now is a pretty doggone good time to buy. Uh, you know, there's a little, you know, some things that, that uh, globally we're, we're unsure of. You know, if you've got a little bit of tillable acreage on your piece and you can get some cash rent off of that, or you could possibly uh, maybe, let's say, sublease uh, one firearms hunt per year, or let's say it's got some timber on it, and you can figure out, you know, that you're going to maybe get some net some income off of the timber, you know, there's an, or even CRP income. I know they, uh, the administration just signed a bill, and I forgot exactly what the numbers are, but I, I could foresee the CRP programs opening back up because I think the bill was for in excess of, of the CRP contracts. So there's a number of different ways to look at it and to where you can get a, pa a positive cash flow, meaning to where the income that you're generating will service the debt. And that's really what you're concerned with is, okay, the interest on this loan, how can I do that and uh, still be able to make the payments, you know, if interest rates would happen to go up. So you really got to analyze it. You got to be smart. It doesn't cost anything to look. And if a guy's really, really smart, if it takes him 
six months, eight months, a year, 18 months, however long, if he gets a piece in his craw and he says, you know what, I can get this thing to where it's cash flow positive, it's got a little bit of income from the tillable, it's got a little bit of timber on it that I could maybe log off and get a little income there, it's got maybe uh, the ability to, to lease out one gun hunt or something per year for a buddy and, and possibly use that revenue, all of that you can figure out how it will service the debt on a monthly basis. And then, uh, and then you're, then you're worried about trying to make the, uh, equity payments yourself, but you give up, you make sacrifices and those things that you're accustomed to, you know, maybe that cruise that you go on or that trip to, to Breckenridge or whatever it may be, you got to give up a few things, but then at the end of the day, you got the dirt to, uh, to keep for the rest of your life and your family to enjoy. Yeah. So if, if you're going to go into in that kind of, with that kind of goal, the goal of starting small, flipping it and slowly working your way up, is there anything in particular other than the things you already mentioned? Is there anything else that you look for in particular when you're trying to find a flip type property, like something that's, you can get for a pretty cheap price, but there's the potential to turn it into something with a profit. Anything that stands out to you that you're looking for, for that scenario? Check what's around you. You got to know your neighbors. You got to be very, very, uh, in tune with what they're doing. And if they're on, on track and they're, you know, managing a particular area and there's maybe decent tillable fields or there's decent timber in and around, make sure you understand what that market will bear. You know, how much are they getting per acre on the tillable? How much is the CRP income if it has CRP income? And, it, you know, at least be analytical about it. Be smart about it. It's not something you want to rush into. It's something that you want to take your time, build your own spreadsheet. You know, if it takes you, you know, two, three weeks to build the spreadsheet and analyze every little detail, uh, just be analytical. You know, there's there's a thing called due diligence. We've all heard about that. Be very diligent in, in your efforts to make sure that you cover all your bases and you don't miss anything. But I would certainly try and find out what's going around, going on around you. And then look at historical records as far as the, uh, you know, what's that, that property done over the years, take the last 25, 30 years, or maybe even go back further than that and see what kind of history you've had there. And you can check those public records, you know, at the assessor or the, uh, uh, county courthouse, or you may go to a realtor. You can contact a realtor. Some of them are going to be really, really, uh, in tune with recreational properties. Some of them, maybe not. If it's a residential, you know, real estate agent, they may not be as aware of what you're looking for. So make sure you you do your due diligence on that end to find out exactly what's available and make sure that you're hooked up with a real estate agent that knows. You know, there's guys out there like Whitetail Properties. Those guys know what they're doing. They know the business. Uh, They've got some tremendous agents that that are all hunters. And uh, those are the guys you want to talk to. And just knowing what type of deer have been killed in that area, you know, is it, have they been killing some 170s and 200s and, and that sort of thing, or the genetics there, then uh, by all means, you're going to look a little harder at those types of areas. Yeah. Now, something else um, I imagine when you're trying to find a small property to get started with is um, something I heard, maybe it was Mark talk about, or maybe you, I can't remember when it came to this specific farm, the 60 acre farm, uh, you guys have a couple videos on the DeerCast app where you, you do a tour of the property. And one of you mentioned that, yeah, it's, it's only 60 acres, but it feels like 120. It hunts like 120. It's a small piece that just seems much larger. What about a small property might lend itself to, to feeling larger, or hunting larger? What kind of things should we look for to try to find that small piece that actually feels bigger. 
I think because that piece was diverse in its cover and topographically, there was a little bit of elevation change from the ridges down to the bottom. So when you walk in there, you go, oh my God, this thing is huge. And you, it just felt bigger. But I think that topographic change from the top down to the bottom, uh, elevation change might've been, you know, 120 foot, 150 foot. And it may have been less than that. We didn't shoot it, but then again, there was such diverse uh, selection of cover. You know, there were cedars and brush and briars and those thickets that you look for. And then when you get into this bottom field, it was just rather open. And immediately we're going, okay, there's our food plot right here. It's a no-brainer. And then there was a pond just above that. And then you go above that and there's a hardwood ridge. And it, it gave us every every single thing we would be looking for on a parcel that, that we wanted. And then when we walked it, it just seemed like it was bigger than 60 acres. And uh, I think that's why, because of diverse uh, selection of, of cover and then also the topographic changes in elevation. Yeah. So when you guys got there on the farm um, or, or any other new spot that you have like this, whether it be a new lease or a new property just bought, can you, can you share what your first steps are as far as like, how do you start kind of surveying the farm to decide, okay, this is what we have. This is what we need. These are the first things we want to do. Can you kind of walk me through your mindset and what that that first step might be as you start to kind of take inventory of what the situation is right off the gate? Well, I don't think we're, we're any different than every other, you know, true blue, red-blooded hunter. When we walk in there, if our eyes pop open and we go, oh my God, then we know we've hit the mother load. It's like, this is, this is where a deer should live. This is where deer should travel. This is where deer is going to want to be. And then, okay, how can we make it fit to where we can get in and out of here without running them out. That's the biggest, I think one of the biggest detriments that I see is, are people spending a lot of time on their parcel and sometimes pushing out the deer that they're trying to hunt. So the next thing we look at is, okay, do we have access and on what wind direction? You know, what's the prevailing wind for this particular area? And then how can we get in here without running deer out? Well, this parcel that we, the 60 acres had that, it had access on on several sides. And we were like, okay, that gets us in here. Now, where are we going to put the food? We wanted it. It felt like when we walked in there, you know, there was sign, there was rubs, there was tracks and, and there was everything that, that we were looking for, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't tracked up or hogged up like we wanted. And that might've had something to do with the fact that there wasn't food on it. So that was the next thing. Okay, where are we going to place these food plots so that we can still get in here without running them out and so that we can access it from different wind directions? And then where is the, uh, where's the most sense make to where we can, we call it food plot architecture, where we can pick the tree or pick the set and then plant the food plot accordingly. And we did just that. We walk it and we look at it. We look at trails. We look at tracks. We look at rubs. We look at scrapes. And then say, okay, where is he betting? And then where is he going? Is he going across the road? Is he staying internally here? Is he going to deeper timber? Is he going to a food source? You know, where are they going morning and where are they going evening? So we're, we're very analytical, but our first impression, our gut feeling when we walk into a piece is really not too indifferent from what most other hunters would have. And that's when our eyes pop open and go, oh boy, this is the spot. And that's the feeling that we got when we walked into that 60. Yeah, that's a good feeling. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. 
book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts, who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed? Quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. When you're starting out on a new farm, is food always the thing you prioritize first or do you go and look and see, okay, where are my weak spots and maybe in some cases I need more cover or sometimes it's food or I'm kind of curious about how you prioritize like what projects need to be done first. You know, I think when you look at it and you say, all right, is there is there a lot of sign and the deer are already living there? Uh, how much food do I need to plant? And where would I plant it? Or when you walk into a spot and you say, you know what, there's not as much sign here as I like. There's not as much tra- as many tracks and as many d- rubs and scrapes as what I prefer. I need to put more food in to suck them in here, you know, to pull them off of neighbors. And particularly if you're uh, in and around or close to deep timbered spots where there's not a lot of uh, acreage for tillable or not a lot of ag in and around you there for food, then by all means, you want to load it up with as much food as you can put on it. And sometimes the acidity is so high that that becomes a, you know, a cumbersome task of putting the amount of lime on there that you need to put to make sure that you get the pH correct. But, you know, as far as we're concerned on a, on a piece where it's highly timbered, you can't hardly put enough food uh, because you're wanting to suck some deer off of adjacent pieces to make sure that they have that food for the winter, not early, not just early season, but also uh, middle to rut and late season. And you want to make sure that those that are traveling, those, those bucks that are traveling, you want to make sure that they come in and they park on that food source for a little while. If you've got those that are frequenting that on a daily basis. So we really balance it out. If it's got plenty of sign on it and, and plenty of tracks and rubs and scrapes and trails, then it doesn't get as heavily planted. But if it's a little more scarce and it's not as heavy as you'd like, then we're going to load the food up. Yeah. How do you make those decisions then as far as how to implement food? Um, do you, it kind of sounds like with the 60 acre piece, there were some spots that naturally lent themselves to being great locations for food just because they're relatively open and they seem to be in the right position. Um, but Maybe in other scenarios, like how are you thinking through how much food you need specifically? Like if you've got a 
60 acre piece? Is it just, well, we want one or two acres or do you actually get a scientific as, okay, we want 10% of our 60 acres to be in food. So we would need six acres or I'm kind of curious about how you make the decisions or decisions around the amount of food and of the actual locations of plots, where they start, where you start positioning this stuff within a property. Well, and in answer to your question, you know, there are percentages that we like to try and reach or goals that we like to try and hit. Uh, where you have that open area where you can where you can actually utilize some of those open spaces and plant food on this particular parcel, and I'll use this one just because it was we were so excited about it when we walked in there. It had certain areas that were already open, and at one time I assume they might have had cattle on it or something, or they may have hayed these little spots and made hay off of them, but they were just. Uh, just lent themselves very well to go ahead and put a food plot in because at one time they were kept fairly open. Now it's grown up in and around all those edges and there seems to be a tremendous amount of bedding in and around it. So there was nothing magic about the the formula per se, but we're going to try and plant as much of those open areas as we can or as many of those open areas as we can so that we get as much food on it as we can possibly cram in there. Uh, and, and those are some things that a guy can work on too. If he says, you know what, they ate everything I planted, uh, before October the 30th, then you're going, okay, I need to plant more food next year. Or if you've got a little, you know, some remnants and you still have some food left over, then you're saying, okay, I had the right amount of food, but I want, I still want to expand it because I want to suck more deer in here. So there's a different way of looking at it. One of the things that we like to do on our farms is go green to grain. You know, and we talk about green to green transfer all the time so that whenever soybeans start uh, defoliating and changing and when the corn starts hardening and they're not, you know, silking them anymore, you want to have a green food source in those October months for them to go to. And we always, you know, non-typical clover or clover plus, both are biologic products. We plant a lot of that on our farms to make sure that we can handle that green to green transfer because they're going to be looking for that green food source once those soybeans defoliate and once the the, uh, corn hardens and, and they're no longer silking them. So we make sure that's number one. Now, if you can back that green food source up against a grain like corn and beans, then more power to you. You want to have that green as close and as tight into those bedding cover or those bedding areas as you possibly can. But you also want to stay cognizant of the fact that you still got to get in and out of those without bumping them out. So there's kind of a science to it. And uh, you really want to be careful on wind direction, how you access those and where you place your stands. But on a small parcel, if you don't have the abilities to go in and plant you know, soybeans and or corn, then green is is so much easier to maintain. And whether you want to do, you know, like a, a trophy oats or winter wheat or something, that's always a good one because you can plant it late. You don't have to go through those summer, those hot, hot, dry, arid summer months. You know, you can plant it in there when you're expecting some of those fall rains to get it to germinate. Uh, but we usually have that clover planted early to make sure that we've got both. Uh, because on a parcel this size, it wouldn't have maybe been uh, easy to get the implements in there to plant corn and beans. And chances are they may have not made anyway, because they are, it is a small parcel. So on something like this, we would probably stick with a little more green and we plant it in pretty close to their, uh, little tight bedding areas because you really aren't creating those destination feed fields. You know, they're not big 20 acre, 30 acre, hundred acre food, food sources. They're little bitty pockets. They're, 
you know, acre and a half, two acres, quarter acre, half acre, but you want to give them a variety and you want to make sure that you can hunt those on different wind directions. Yeah. So that kind of ties into the next thing I was curious about, which is, you know, knowing or I imagine there's a balancing act. You kind of alluded to this as far as access when it comes to the number of different plots and how many, because I could, I could foresee a potential situation where you have so many different little plots that then you have issues with access, issues with wind, issues with knowing how deer are using it. If you've got one or two food plots, you might be able to determine a pretty consistent bedding area here and a bedding area there, and they're going to one of these two food sources, and you can start to really understand that pattern. If you have seven little food plots scattered all over the place, I could see that being potentially more confusing. Um, How do you think through that, or is that something you don't worry about? You just want as much food in there, you're not worried about having too much? No, I I think you're 100% correct. I I would worry about that on a small, small parcel. You know, where it makes sense and where it's a no-brainer, those are pretty obvious. You you would put in two food plots and then uh, just start with the historical data. You know, you'd sit there and you'd observe for the first fall and then maybe even the second fall. And it usually takes us about three years to figure a piece out, to really understand it and know it. Uh, because sometimes crop rotation around you or mass crop around you may change those patterns. So we would study it pretty long and hard before we added so much food that it became detrimental, meaning, uh, you know, if you're if you're sitting on one food plot and then you're casting your wind over the top of another one where your deer might come from, you know, then all of a sudden it becomes detrimental. So we would hunt it smart. We'd start on those perimeters and uh, make sure that we don't penetrate too far in, particularly on a small parcel like this one, uh, until the rut. Then maybe, you know, first, you know, uh, maybe first 10 days of November, then you might pile in a little bit harder and uh, go into the maybe into the center of it. But I would start on those perimeters and do a lot of observation uh, because the MRI is, is priceless on a new part, parcel like that. And we'd have, you know, put as many cameras out there as we could, could do. You know, you'd put three or four cameras in there too. I would put them on the perimeters, put them on the outskirts to where you're not doing a lot of damage as you walk in there. Uh, and then maybe you'd kind of tip in and move one in there a little bit tighter. So during the rut, you could slip in there and check it and find out what's going on internally. But uh, I, would, I would be very, very cautious about the amount of food I planted early on just so that you could get the MRI and start collecting that data and then say, you know what, I can put another food plot down at the end of this ridge and I can access it from another direction and so on and so forth to where you're not uh, being detrimental to yourself. Yeah, yeah, making slow but steady progress as you learn, that that makes a lot of sense. Now, another thing I hear a lot of people kind of debate about on occasion is positioning of your food in relation to the borders of your property. I've heard some folks advocate for putting your food plots, or at least if you were going to do like a large feed food plot, like your big plot, maybe that would be central. So place that in the center of your property because that will keep deer moving in and staying within daylight hours on your property. And then if you're going to have some smaller kill plots, those radiate out from there. Then I've heard other people say, no, you want it the opposite. You want your best bedding right in the middle of your property, farthest away from other hunters and the outsides. And then you want those deer transitioning from the center of your property out to maybe little kill plots that you can hunt in the transition areas. And then those larger feeding areas are those primary food sources. Those would be on the very far edges of the outside of your property that hopefully they're not hitting those till maybe after dark. And then they're not going to your neighbors possibly as often until, you know, after shooting hours. Uh, Do either one of those two 
options, I guess, appeal to your mindset most? Or do you, what are your thoughts on those? You know, those are two totally different mindsets and we hear those as well. You know, we hear them regularly. Uh, Grant Woods was one of the first one. Dr. Woods was one of the first ones that said, you know, Hey, you want to put your, your betting, uh, on the outside and put your food source in the middle. And, uh, and then in, in certain areas, you may want to put your, just the opposite of that. So I think it depends on the size of the piece that you have and trying to be realistic with that piece. You know, you got to keep it real in the fact, okay, if you've got 20 acres, are those deer really going to stay there? Boy, that's, that's a tough one. Even 40, 80 acres, you know, it's hard to hold them. Uh, Even on those big parcels, we see it all the time where they tip off. You just cannot hold them, uh, you know, in certain, certain parcels. So I think you have to be realistic about will the deer stay there to begin with and and you're going to do your best to keep them by putting as much bedding and cover and you may do some hinging and you may plant switchgrass. You may do all of those things and the doggone deer will still leave your property. I have it all the time. I just, I struggle with the, and I don't know if it's because of the subspecies or what, but I, I really have a lot of deer tip over the edges, tip over the borders. And I may get a picture of them on my south end and then mile and a half away on the north end, you get other pictures of them. So it's, it's, that's a fine line and a different approach, both different mindsets. I think both of them work depending on the size of the parcel and, you know, kind of the application that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. What about, you mentioned food plot architecture and this kind of, this kind of all falls in the same category, whether it's where you position your plots or how you actually shape them and plan them. But I know that you guys have, have, have been working with food plots for a long time now. You've taken it far beyond just the basics of find an opening, toss some seed, hope something grows. You guys are really, really fine tuning things. What are some of those next level tweaks that you guys are making when it comes to your food plot strategy. Um, you, you alluded to one, which is the fact that, and correct me if I got this wrong, but you said that many times you'll pick the right tree first and then plant a plot around that specific tree. Um, could you expand on that or share any other of these next level food plot planning things you're doing? You're 100% correct. And, and that starts with MRI and it starts with observation you know, we may take two years or three years and we may watch a food plot or a food source or just travel corridors, travel routes and say, okay, those deer feel comfortable being right here to begin with. Now, are there any trees in that particular area that would serve themselves extremely well where we have back cover and yet we can access that tree without running them out and we get the proper wind direction that we need to uh, keep deer from being downwind. Are they all always coming from one direction in the evening? Are they always coming from another direction in the morning? So that MRI and that historical data kind of tells you where to go and where they feel comfortable because there's certain areas of a field where they just won't walk. And, and we've noticed that throughout the, the course of time. You may put a tree, uh, hang a set in a tree and go, Doggone, I don't know why they won't come up here. I've got the food here, but they just won't walk over there. There are certain areas in a field where they feel extremely comfortable. A lot of them are because of visual observation. You know, we always worry about deer and their noses, but by golly, they still want to see what's going on, and they're still a curious animal. So uh, getting to certain areas where, where it may be a little bit of a vantage point for them, you know, and they may come up a big drainage or a crack or a, a, a gully or a rut or something to get to it, but eventually they're going to get to a spot where they can see. And uh, sometimes those are the areas that you say, all right, they're all comfortable here. 
Now, where's the nearest tree that I can pick that I can get into and still have the right wind direction? And we do that a lot where we'll pick the tree and then we'll plant to that tree and we'll create inside and outside corners with food, food plots, whether it be corn and beans or whether it's clover and corn or whether it's clover and biologic, but we're going to change it up to where we've either got uh, maybe an elevation change with the, with the food plot or maybe it's just a variety change in what type of food plot we're planting there. But we do that quite often and create those inside and outside corners uh, because they just they just feel more comfortable coming to those particular spots. Can you can you elaborate on what you mean by that, the inside and outside corners? And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're saying you would position those corners to where your stand would be. Is that right? Because you think that that will be the most likely point of entry or exit for a deer where you'd be able to get a shot? Absolutely. 100% correct. If you've got, let's say, standing corn, and a lot of guys can't do this, obviously, because you don't have the implements or you may or may not have the acreage or something. But if you're in an area where you do have the ability to get standing corn, uh, you want to make sure that you create that inside corner uh, right there to where it butts up. The end of that corn butts up to either a clover field, uh, a soybean field, a biologic winter bulbs and sugar beets, maximum uh, turnips, all of those, all of those elements, regardless what type of food plot you're planting, it's nice to have an inside corner where they're going to file out and feel comfortable coming out, whether they're coming out of the timber or whether they're coming out of the corn, they always like that edge or that little bit of cover to pop out. And, uh, we create those on a very, very frequent basis. And we do just the opposite. We create outside corners just like we do inside corners. And it may be where some fences come together. You know, it may be a spot where, where two fences come together and there's a tree that just happens to be there. Uh, we do that quite often as well. Then we plant to that outside corner accordingly. And uh, they may walk around the end of it. They may get to it and jump the fence right before they hit the corner uh, or, or, or vice versa. You know, but particularly if it's a four-strand barbed wire uh, where you see that often, particularly where someone had been maybe cattling it for, for many, many years and they no longer have cattle in the timber or on that hay ground. And uh, there's a fence corner there. We do that quite frequently as well. Yeah. And this is a concept that can help folks, whether you're planting your own food plots and managing your own property or not. I mean, you can look for these types of features just naturally as well, um, especially if you're hunting farmland. I, I remember a, a specific example that still haunts me. I was heading in to hunt a property I had permission, and I'm sneaking in. I kind of had an idea of where I wanted to go, and it was right on the edge where a standing cornfield met a standing bean field. And then there's a chunk of timber, you know, right on the on the edge of that. And I thought to myself, okay, this is that perfect corner like you just described there, Terry. Diversity of habitat. You've got a great edge here that then connects with the timber. It was just – it looked – it screamed off the map as a great spot to be. But I walked to that point. I was about to get set up. And then I spotted a big oak tree down the edge of the field another 60, 70 yards away. And – for whatever reason, I decided that I wanted to be closer to those acorns and not be on that edge. I just thought I was a little more enticed by the acorns down the edge. And I went and set up 70 yards away from the edge of the beans and the standing corn. And at last light, had to watch a really, really nice shooter acorn go walking right down that edge, right past where I was originally going to set up. And uh, it was a great lesson learned to uh, to stick with your initial instincts sometimes and hunt those terrain features versus getting tempted by a little bit of candy off uh, off in the distance. And uh, I won't forget that one. And, you know, a, a scenario like that, late season is a really, really good time to, 
you know, inspect those areas and see exactly where those really, really defined trails are coming in and out. Uh, and a lot of times those buck, bucks won't use those same defined trails. And instead of going, you know, with the trail, a lot of times they go against the grain and they'll be going perpendicular to those trails, particularly going back to bed in the mornings where they're, you know, they're kind of checking every trail. They're not just hitting one or two, but they'll check them all. And uh, certain times of the years, they, they certain time of the year, they may funnel out or they may file out following some does out onto the food plot where they are on that trail. But that first week in November, when they're looking for those first available estrus does, they go transverse to those trails. They'll go perpendicular to them and they'll check them all. So being on that edge, uh, even though you're in that big old fat oak tree, you still may get a shot at him if he comes far enough. So that's not the worst thing. You had the right, <laughs> the right uh, idea. And it might be different at a different time of the year where they may, where they may be under those, uh, you know, those white oaks. But with that said, we always look at those uh, definitive spots, the ones that jump out at you and say, you know what, here's where I'll start. And, but we pick the tree and then we plant our, our food plot accordingly. We always pick it first. And we got to have good back cover. You got to have access and really, really good back cover, particularly if you're sitting over a, a food plot where you know there's going to be a lot of eyeballs. So you want to be able to sit there and, and uh, keep from getting picked off and make sure that you got great back cover so they don't uh, see you up in the tree. Yeah, so so one of the challenges that um, I know a lot of people encounter when trying to set up a property with food and hunting access and everything is is trying to think through where your wind is going to blow in a situation like this because there's there's one scenario where the wind is blowing from the bedding out into the open field and that's great until that food source fills up with deer towards the end of the night and now all of a sudden your wind is blowing to where all those deer are now and you know for the last 10 minutes you're hoping that mature buck's going to step out and instead your wind has just spooked 10 does off of the food plot and now they're all running back in. You're not going to see the buck. The opposite situation is that if you, you know, if you have that wind blowing anywhere into the cover, you risk, of course, spooking something um, before they ever get out there. Ideally, you'd like to have a situation that doesn't do either one of those. Are, are there any specific things you think about or tricks as far as positioning your plot or your stands to negate those two potential wind issues? Well, it gets back to historical data and MRI, you know, an observation. Where is where is the least amount of activity coming from? And you're going to give up a downwind side. There are no two ways about it. I don't care who you are or how hard you hunt or how scent-free you are. You're still going to give up a downwind side if you're in a tree stand. So, that historical data becomes extremely important. MRI, knowing where those deer are coming out, where they feel comfortable feeding, and where the least amount of activity comes from. And then you say, okay, I've been watching this thing for two, three years now, and there are zero deer coming from this direction. Then by golly, there's the area that you're going to want to look for a tree and say, I can, I can get in there and I can let my wind go out over this direction and do very little damage. And I think it's as much about being smart and observing where they're coming from and where they're going to as it is just picking that tree and, and hoping and praying that the wind will, won't uh, mess you up because it only takes one. And if she, if she blows and clears the field and they domino back, that is the worst feeling in the world for them to domino back because if, you, if they would have stayed on the field, pretty good chance you'd have seen that buck and he'd have been out there during daylight hours. But once they domino back, then you're another – hour, hour and a half, two hours, and maybe not at all. You may not see them at all the rest of the night. So uh, it's extremely important, but it gets back to being uh, observant 
you know, when you're sitting there the first two years. And that's the reason we like to hunt the perimeters first and try and start making those observations and saying, okay, now I can move in. I know which tree I want to sit in because there's very little movement coming in and out of that tree. But yet I still want to be able to get that deer within bow range. And that's where the inside and outside corners become important. Yeah, that's that's when you start getting the kind of the art of it all. Um, you talked about that domino effect when that one doe blows and sends everything back. And I agree that there's not a worse feeling, I think, in the world than when you hear that blow and you just your heart just drops. And it's funny, the other night I was sitting in bed reading and all of a sudden I heard a doe blow. I heard that and my heart just dropped. My my breathing stopped. I had this this physical reaction because it was like my body automatically reacting to this sound that I hate so much. And then I took a second. I realized, hey, you're sitting in bed. There's no dough blowing at you right now. And I realized it was my dog snoring. But <laughs> <laughs> but I had this very... Okay, you had me wondering there. <laughs> <laughs> I had this very visceral physical reaction that was just like pre-programmed into my body whenever I hear that kind of sound. <laughs> uh, it made me realize it I spend... Yeah, it, it really is. I tell you, and, and I'm I'm one of those guys. I thoroughly enjoy harvesting <laughs> harvesting does. I've been doing it for many many years, and if they so much as look cross-eyed at me, they they uh, they usually don't leave the field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably the way to take care of that issue. Um, well, now, we we have the luxury because the deer density is so high. I just can't seem to get the numbers down, and and that's a great problem to have. I'm not complaining by no means. I I enjoy seeing them. I enjoy harvesting them. Uh, we just had some venison sausage made, you know, some summer sausages made. And, and, uh, I was, I was tickled to try it. I got, my wife had picked it up. I had dropped it off and they, they made it. She had picked it up. So I, I tried a piece last night and it was phenomenal. So, yeah. uh, we, we eat it all season long and continue to, to keep the freezers full. Yeah. You can't, you can't beat that. Um, one additional question on the food plot architecture piece. We talked about positioning where you want the plots. We talked about where your tree is going to be handling wind. What about shapes of your actual plantings? Do you do anything to try to funnel deer movement into smaller areas or are you not as concerned about that? That's a great question because we do do that and we're, we're pretty diligent about it. You know, if you see where they're, and again, back to the data and the MRI, if you've watched them for two or three years and you know they're going to pop out over here, and then as the evening progresses, they slowly migrate to another another part of the field, then by all means, you can do that little hourglass effect or figure eight, so to speak, and neck it down uh, to where, you know, you've got a, a, maybe, a, 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 maybe a little bit closer shot where they're not you know, quite out there at 80 and 100 yards, but maybe they get in with that 35 or 40 yard shot, then by all means do that. We do that quite often or make a little bit of a triangular effect. And it may be something that you've created with some hay bales. I use big round bales all the time and make them walk around the end of them, you know, where I'll, I'll have them straight away from me in a tree stand where I'm looking straight into the end of the bales and they may go, you know, into the timber Oh, three or four bales deep or five bales, but they're within 40 yards whenever they walk around the end of it. I do it all the time. So there's other ways of doing it other than just necking down your food plot. But, but Mark's a master at it. Uh, the mad scientist does it on, on a lot of different things where he does that hourglass effect. Yeah, that, that seems to be a good way to, again, to your point, there's a whole lot of ways to, to influence movement. And as you start stacking up that MRI, 
you're learning, 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 then you can start tweaking, tweaking, tweaking a little more every year. Um, and that for me is probably what's become the most fun. I love making all these little tweaks. You try something out, you put something out there, then you get to sit for a season and watch how they use it and watch how they enjoy the food or the cover you enhance. Like that's incredible to see. And then the chess match begins again. You get to keep turning the knobs, pulling the levers and, uh, I geek out over that big time. <laughs> well, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a tree and go, why did I do that? <laughs> you know, that was stupid. I, I don't know why I planted so much food and made this plot so much bigger where now I can't, I can't shoot any of them. So there you can make mistakes and you learn by those mistakes, but you got to be uh, willing to say, you know what, next year I'm going to change this a little bit. Uh, or I'm going to take a disc and I'm going to disc up what I planted because they're out there at 400 yards or 200 yards and I can't get a shot anyway. So you may, you know, eliminate a little part of it. You know, it may only be a couple brush hogs wide or something, but, uh, try and direct a whitetail into your position is not as hard as what someone might think, but it takes observation first. And if they're comfortable being there, then it becomes a lot more, uh, a lot more easily done. Yeah. So, so to that point, if they're comfortable there, I think that is a key aspect of food plots is making sure they feel comfortable. And, Lots of times folks will plant food plots and then they think that's going to be this silver bullet that's going to change everything for them with their hunting. But then they go in there in the mornings and they spook deer off the food plots. And then in the evenings, they leave their tree stands that are hung right in the edge of the food plot and they walk through it and they spook a bunch of deer. And after doing that two or three times, now they never see bucks anymore. And then eventually they never see does anymore. And they're wondering, why is my hunting worse now than it was before I had the food plots? Um I think that's a scenario that people sometimes experience when they're not thinking about access or ways to maintain security within those food plots for those deer. So that brings me to two questions. Number one, do you ever do anything as far as screening cover to increase security for deer within those food plots so they feel like they can't see things outside or they can't see you moving in? Um, And then number two, what else, if, if there's things other than screening cover, are you doing to help improve your access, your own hunting access in and out? Well, and, and you hit on two there, in and out. It's as hard to get out of a tree stand as it is to get in a tree stand. When they're, you know, if you're getting into your tree stand early enough and the deer haven't moved yet, they're obviously not on the food plot. And, you know, a lot of times they won't see you access that spot. You can climb up, get settled in, but you still got to get out of it at night. So that's the one or in the dark. That's the one that that really is, uh, can do the, you know, the harm and the sightings, uh, literally go down and I don't know what that incremental rate is, but if you go to the same set four or five nights in a row, your sightings are going to go down accordingly. So it's extremely important to be able to bounce around and hunt on the right winds, but it's extremely hard to get out of there. And yes, we do create uh, different access uh, points and whether we're cutting through a timber or using a, a, I use, you know, little drainages and draws and I make sure that they're clean. We'll go in with a chainsaw and make sure that they're clean and you can slip in or slip out through that drainage without being seen. If you're up on top of a hogback or a ridge, they all see you. If you're down in the crack, you know, and you're, and you're kind of hunkered down and you got a little bit of cover going in and out and, and we'll locate a tree stand sometimes in a spot where I know I can climb up the backside of a tree without being detected. In addition to that, we may plant in areas. I had a spot last year on a farm that had a pretty big bottom field and I felt like the bottom was way too open and it felt like the deer didn't feel comfortable crossing that particular field. So I loaded it up with corn and with biologic. 
in that corn, because my muddy bull blind was on the other end of the field, I needed a way to access it without being seen. I planted a guest row. And a guest row is just where your planter, you move over a little bit and you leave yourself uh, a little width between two rows. And then we went down through there with a machete and we trimmed them just a little bit. And you could literally walk 400 yards through the cornfield without ever being detected. And it was as sweet an access as I've ever had to get in and out of a spot. And uh, we did that last year. All we did was move the planter over. And I think we were maybe... I don't know, 50, uh, let's see, 12, we were 16 rows in from the edge of the field and then planted that guest row and you could walk all the way to the blind 400 yards without ever being, without ever being out in the open. And this was a, a pretty decent bottom field. So that was one way. Planting switchgrass is another. Mark does that and, and has that on a lot of different spots on his farms where he's got, uh, has it created that cover where it's up over your head and then you might take a little mower or something and, and create a little path where you can get in and out of there without being detected. Uh, using, you know, some brushy areas that you can get into a tree stand without being detected, using the, the terrain, the topography to help you. There's a number of different ways of doing it, but being able to get in and out is always crucial and you do as much harm getting out as you do walking in. Yeah, so so true. And um, I will I, if I had the ability. I don't yet, but if I ever have the ability to plant standing corn, that is a trick I will definitely be be utilizing because that just sounds like the kind of access route that gets a deer geek like me really excited. Imagining being able to slip in and out so easily without being detected. Uh, that's that's a dream scenario. Um, and it, it was, I'll interrupt you here. It was the single best access I've ever created, bar none. And we've wow. done a lot of them, but that one was slick. I kid you not. It was, you could walk down this entire bottom field and they knew they had no clue you were there. And it was easy. It was quiet. It was, you didn't make any noise because we took the time in the summer months to go through with a machete. And even though the guest row was, was wide, we wanted to make sure we didn't rub against anything or hit anything with our bow, our cameras, our arms, our elbows, our knees, and it was clean. I mean, you literally could skirt down through there and nothing knew you were there. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. If that's a dream scenario, then which it is, I need to ask you about a nightmare scenario, which is when your plans for a food plot, whether it be a corn plot for access or a green field to actually hunt. Maybe I think probably the green field's a better example of this. But when you have a situation like that where you're hit with the worst weather possible during the summer or the fall when you plant it and you have drought and your food plot has failed. Um, I have seen you use some different creative ways to deal with scenarios like that. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you handle drought and other issues with food plots? Um, uh, you've got a few tricks up your sleeve, I think. Well, for whatever reason, the the uh, region that I'm in, in northern Missouri there where my farm is located, I, I don't know why, but we, we get hit with a drought, seems like, every single year. You know, and Brother Mark's up there, his corn's 12 foot tall, and his beans are up over his, you know, his, his belt. And he's uh, telling me how good his, his food plots look. And I'm struggling, literally struggling to get a drop of rain. And uh, it becomes extremely stressful in the fact that, you know, it costs a lot to, you know, the input costs are high and the spraying and all those other things. And it's just, it, I, I'm faced with it each and every year. So I went through the trouble. I found a, a used fire truck that was for sale sitting at a, uh, you know, outside of a firehouse. And I ended up purchasing it for a little bit of nothing. 
And this thing had a, you know, a 390 engine in it with a big stainless 2,500 gallon water tank on the back. And the tank was worth, and the motor was worth more than the truck. So I was like, man, I got to get this thing. And I've been (laughs) utilizing it. I pump, fortunately, I have some farm ponds. So I pump water out of the ponds, load the truck. And I try to try to keep a few food plots alive each and every year. And then, and then hope that we're going to get a little bit of rain and mother nature be kind enough to keep some of the other stuff growing. But I found out that I can't water them all when it's 110 degrees, but I'm able to put enough water on two or three of them to, uh, to keep them, to keep them going and keep them green. In addition to that, because I have a few farm ponds, I started looking at areas where I could siphon water. And we've done that over the top of the levee where I'll just take literally a garden hose and a bucket with a rock in the bucket and put holes in the bucket. So I throw it out into the pond and uh, then I got a garden hose going over the back of the levee. And and typically the backside of a pond is usually a low-lying area. It's some silt that's usually washed down in there. It's usually grass that's fairly tall or some thick cover, but it's not very hard to keep a food plot growing. And it may be a small one, you know, as small as it may be. It may only be a quarter of an acre, a third of an acre, half acre, whatever, but it's pretty easy to keep those growing if you've got a little bit of a siphon effect going. And, I, and I've done that on two or three occasions as well. Two or three different areas that I had never planted before and said, you know what, the, the water's right here and we have an elevation change of 15 foot, all I got to do is start a siphon and let the water run out. And we've been doing that. And in a garden hose, it doesn't take much. You move the hose about every other day or whatever. And uh, it's just enough to keep it alive until Mother Nature blesses you with a, with a nice rain. And, and I think I saw, so what you're doing there with that hose is you're running it into your food plot. And then you have a bunch of holes cut into the hose at different distances. So you're kind of getting almost like a sprinkler effect across part of the plot. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I, I bought some half-inch PVC and took a drill and drilled holes in it. And uh, it's you know you're, it's a siphon, so you you got to neck it down a little bit to make sure it's got enough pressure to even come out of those holes. But it did, it worked, and uh, we were tickled to death to get it to work. So you kind of got to be smart about it. So we got a little bit bigger holes than going to smaller ones, or smaller than going to bigger, and and trying to get that volume out and making sure that the the you know the end of it is plugged, obviously. But um, you know we were just trying to get creative and say, how in the world can I keep this food plot growing because it's in the middle of my farm? It's one of the best spots of my entire farm, and I have zero food here because they, it all burnt up. So we started getting more and more creative each and every year. And I said, you know what? This is a no-brainer. It costs you literally nothing, a few garden hoses and some, <laughs> a couple pieces of PVC pipe. And uh, it's worked out pretty doggone well. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty ingenious. <laughs> I like uh, the creative DIY uh, work on that one to, uh, to solve a problem that could be pretty tricky otherwise, especially in a, in a region like sounds like where you're at, where for whatever reason, getting some, some funky, consistent droughts, that's that's kind of a, a frustrating situation, I got to believe. Well, and, and, and another thing we did to enhance that little food plot, we went ahead and put scrape trees in there. I, I cut some shingle oaks down and then planted a, you know, just took a post hole digger and put a scrape tree in there and then all, and then put a camera on it. And it's amazing how many bucks I was getting on this little bitty uh, hidey hole food plot below this pond. And uh, early season, you, it can be pretty doggone lethal if it's still warm, still hot, still dry, and they've got a green food plot, just a lush food plot, and then they got water right there as well. So we put a scrape tree in, put a camera on it, and we're like, holy cow, there's a lot more deer using this than what I realized. 
There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts, who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed? Quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Do you put scrape trees in all of your food plots or large open food sources like that? You know, I don't in all of them, but I do in several where I where I want to shoot one with a bow and I want to get him within 25 yards or 22 yards. I do in a lot of those, you know, because there are there are firearm spots and then there are archery spots. And we're a little more creative with our archery spots uh, than we are the firearms. But Mark's got him in most of his or many of his, and he, he's got or had really, really good luck with it over the years. Tremendous pictures and video footage of these things. Uh, so we've been putting more and more out, seems like, each and every year. Yeah, it, it definitely seems to be a, uh, a tactic that works. I've been using it here in Michigan, too, and great pictures and great way to get deer to move to a specific location and pause for a moment, sometimes for a shot. It's uh, It seems to be a no-brainer in a lot of cases. Speaking of trees, though, uh, I want to make sure that we do talk about the other half of whitetail habitat. We talked a lot about food, but what about cover? Um, how do you think about how do you like to implement cover improvements in situations where you need that? Do you do a lot of that? Actually, we do. And, and I'll tell you that I mentioned Dr. Grant Woods uh, a little while ago. He was one of the first ones that, that looked at a piece of property with us, and, and it was a piece that Mark had purchased, and Grant was walking through it, and he said, you know, what do you got here for – for cover and food and and it was full of uh, shagbark hickories and mark said well we got all these hickories and he said that that's not cover our food yet they get zero zero uh benefits out of a shagbark hickory so you know we look at it and say oh man we got all this cover he looked at it and said you know what you could be doing better by hinging some of these trees and letting that sunlight hit the ground and promoting some of that uh you know that understory to grow in lieu of having that big old hickory there because the only thing he's supporting is a, is a nest of squirrels. So, you know, everybody looks at it differently. It's nice to have someone with a forestry background that says, okay, here's, 
you've got, uh, you know, white oaks, you've got pin oaks, you've got reds, you've got shingles, you got which ones are, you know, a prime food source for a whitetail? Which ones do you want to promote? Where do you want to go in and put a little uh, fertilizer stick at the base of that tree or put two or three around the base of that tree if you've got a stand nearby, you know, and you're, and you're planning on hunting a white oak grove? So there's different ways of looking at it and different people that have different uh, facilities that can help you with that. But we always look at the mass crop. I always want to know exactly what's going to uh, put that fat, you know, onto their uh, their body before the rut hits and during the rut. Are they going to have enough food source and enough mass crop to uh, to carry them through? And carrying capacity is so important. Now in areas where there's, let's say you might be butted up against a, a tillable field, but because of the efficiency of, of the farming equipment nowadays, years ago, there was a lot of it that laid on the ground anymore. There isn't many kernels that lay there anymore. You don't see a lot of corn and beans laying on the ground because the, the equipment has gotten so much more efficient. And, uh, you know, I think the numbers really kind of test testimonial to that. You see the numbers have, have declined in, in those really, really big areas where there are a lot of ag fields, but it's kind of broken woodlots. I think the number in the deer density is down because there, it doesn't have the carrying capacity that it once had. Mm-hmm. So we're careful about looking for a mass crop. We're also careful about looking at the ag fields that are in and around it. Uh, but, you know, how, ma- how many white oak trees you got? You know, reds and blacks are all good. Uh, but we really want to make sure that it's got a mass crop as well. Yeah. Now, what about what about actual bedding areas within that cover? Do you get as strategic with bedding as you do with food? And, and by that, I mean, do you ever try to go in and say, hey, I really wish that the bedding was happening here and then create a great bedding area there? Or do you usually just look and see where are they bedding now? And then do we, if we need to improve it a little bit, improve it, or do we just leave it alone? Which of those two do you do? Well, I haven't done a lot of it on my farm because I, I have what I feel as though sufficient amount of bedding and we got food plots planted in and pretty tight to that bedding. And then we've got destination feed fields where they'll leave the bedding, hit the green, and then go to grain. So that's really the optimum if you can accomplish that. On smaller pieces, then I could see doing a little more, uh, you know, as far as promoting that bedding. And, and you can do that by hinging. It's really not that hard. And it, and it may be trees that are, that are already dying. You know, in Missouri, we got hit with a lot of diseases on, on some of our oak trees that literally took out some of the most beautiful timber you'd ever want to see. And in those particular scenarios, you could go ahead and log it out, get the logs off of it, and then promote it with with different brush piles. You know, take those tops and put them in a certain uh, pattern or a certain direction where you kind of maybe funnel some deer past a tree stand. It's not that hard to do. It takes a little manual labor and a chainsaw. But, uh, you know, if you go in there and you do it early on and you continue enhancing that each and every year, you can direct a lot of that traffic you know, if you've got certain trails and they're just skirting you by, you know, an extra 10 or 15 yards that you don't like, then by all means, take some of those trees that are either not helping a whitetail or they're already dead and create your own funnel inside. And it may or may not be bedding necessarily, but just by creating that structure and that funnel type effect, you can have a, a a pretty compounding effect. Yeah, I, I see there being just as many interesting ways you could 
manipulate and tweak things within a timbered environment as you could in like the fields where you're doing food plot architecture. There's probably, and I know there are examples of people doing kind of timber architecture or cover architecture to get those edges, to get deer moving down, to funnel deer through different ways. Um, it's, there really is, it's kind of a property really can be a canvas and you can paint whatever picture you want on it, whether that be with a chainsaw or with a tractor. Um, either way, there's ways to, to move things around to work towards your benefit as a hunter. And then of course, improving the habitat for deer and, and all the wildlife there. Usually they, they go hand in hand, right? Well, and you, you hit the nail on the head, you know, it's a blank canvas when it's a new piece that you're starting with. And, uh, it depends how assertive and how aggressive you want to get with it. But, one of the things that I've noticed throughout time, uh, the guys that are killing the biggest of deer with consistency, you know, consistently are those guys that are more aggressive. You know, the guy that sits on his heel and just sits back and watches, uh, he may or may not, he may kill one or two, but he's not going to do it year after year. It's that guy that's a little more, uh, maybe, I don't know, a little more type A that's a little more aggressive. Mark being one of them, he, he just, He's never satisfied and he's never happy with his own performance, so he continues to enhance it day after day after day. And if it means putting a few hay bales out in front of you in a, in a uh, feed field or a food plot, then by all means do it. Or if it means going into the timber with a chainsaw and taking a deadfall and moving it and creating that windrow of brush to where they got to walk around the end of it, then do that too. Or, or move your tree stand, one or the other. But there's ways of doing it. And they're not that hard. It just takes a little bit of manual labor. And, and uh, if you can con a couple buddies into helping you, it's all that much easier where you just tell them what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a move right there that, uh, that's good to perfect. Um, you know, something we haven't really talked about at all is kind of the third leg of the tripod that the deer live off of, which is food, cover, and then water. Do you, do you ever do much water manipulation? Do you ever try to dig in ponds or, or add things like that? Um, I know you mentioned using ponds to water food plots, but do you ever try to create water sources? You know, a lot of guys do. I have not because I have seven or eight farm ponds on my particular farm and a couple of them are, are pretty good size and we, we fish them. And, and, uh, you know, I, that was one of the reasons I bought the piece that I did was because it had so many farm ponds on it. And when I bought it, I thought, man, I'm going to fish these every day. And that doesn't happen. You never have time <laughs> to fish them, but Every once in a while, we'll get a wild hare and, and fish them and clean them and eat them. But with that being said, I think water source is one of the most important, particularly during the rut. And up in your neck of the woods, I know they've been masters at, at making it work for them for a number of years where they go in and create those little bitty, uh, you know, farm ponds, if you will, even though they're small, mm -hmm. uh, they'll do it in the middle of the timber. And, and I think that area probably has it down better than most. You know, other than those arid, really, really dry regions down in Texas and Oklahoma where they have water troughs and, and those types of things, I think uh, where you're located there, they've been mastering that for quite a while. I have not uh, because I think it's a fine line and you got to be careful when if you don't keep them fresh and keep them full, sometimes they can get stagnant on you depending on the size of that water source. So in there too, hauling water is not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, but developing it, digging a hole, taking a little, a mini excavator or something out, out there and, and, you know, kind of clearing a little area where, where it's in a little revetment or digging down and then building a levee. It, it's not that hard and it doesn't take much to do it. So if a guy has a, 
a 40 acre, 60 acre piece without water on it, then by all means, I would highly recommend putting a water source on it. Yeah. It seems like you said, there's a lot of folks here in the upper Great Lakes who have found a lot of success putting those little, just like you described, these little water holes back in the timber that specifically during the rut seems to be uh, a great way to get passing bucks to stop for a moment, coming through, hit those little water sources while they're cruising. Um, I've tried it a little bit. I've, I've put a couple in and uh, still trying to try to figure out the best way to do it. But uh, it's definitely something worth considering, especially if you're lacking water in your area. Those those spots are tricky to hunt too. Uh, a, a mature buck is really apprehensive about hitting those. So you got to be kind of cognizant of that. You may or may not kill him when he's at the water. You may have to sit off of that and try and catch him coming to and from. Uh, because they're very, very careful about how they hit a water source. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, speaking of that kind of thing, I guess, right, the situation where you put in a water hole maybe and then you find out, oh, geez, you know, these bucks don't want to come out to it maybe because I put it out too far in the open or maybe because of how I set up on it. Um, mistakes like that that you can only really learn after having tried it and then observed and, and learned from it. You have obviously – done a lot of things right with your with your various farms, especially your main Missouri farm. I know you've spent a lot of time on there. You've built this into a piece of whitetail paradise. Um, you've done a lot right. But I got to believe there's a few things maybe you've done wrong that you've looked back on and said, ah, wish I hadn't done that. Or maybe there was something you realized and you had to fix it. But it's one of those big craws in your back that you always remember, gosh, I sure wasted a lot of time or money on this thing. Um, is there any mistake like that over all of your years on your main farm there in Missouri that you could point to as being an example of that kind of situation? Yeah. Number one, I think it'd be the fact that I got old and lazy, <laughs> you know, it's easy to get, it's easy to get complacent, you know, when we were younger and we were really, really going at it. Uh, it was easy to stay aggressive and stay assertive and try and get all of these things implemented that you want to implement. And then as you, as you get intimate with a farm and you start getting, uh, you know, to the point where it's not, easy, but it's easier than it was in the beginning, then all of a sudden you start to get lazy. And I, I think that, that that can uh, affect a lot of people. So again, and I said it earlier, that it's a matter of staying aggressive, staying assertive, uh, and just not not being satisfied with your own performance. And I think that's why Mark and I excel at times, him, him more so than me, because he's just, his mind never stops. They call him the mad scientist for a reason. His mind is always working. He's constantly looking at Reconix pictures and uh, constantly trying to play the chess match. And he's, he's just never, ever happy. And when he gets one in his craw, he is like an old coyote. I swear. He just, <laughs> when he gets one and he wants to kill him, pretty good chance he's going to work on it until he does if they move during daylight hours. If not, obviously, then it doesn't get done. But uh, he's just a master at it. And I think that's, that's the biggest mistake for me. And I'm just saying this personally, but it's, it's becoming satisfied and, and maybe not being as aggressive as I once was. And some of that comes with age. Some of it comes with just being lazier as you get old, but uh, being more assertive because there's still no matter every day when I go out on the farm, there's still something I can make better. There's still something I can improve. And there's still other ways of harvesting whitetails. I'm, I learn every single day. And uh, we never, ever stop learning. We're always analytical. You know, I've been hunting for 50 years and Mark's been hunting 40 years. So there's 90 years worth of experience between the two of us. And uh, that's one of the reasons that we did DeerCast. That's one of the reasons we developed the app 
was to try and help other people and say, you know what, the next time you go out, what, what was going on here today? What was the barometer? What was the departure from average temperature? What was the wind speed? What was the moon phase? You know, because dark of the moon is dreadful. And uh, we just, our sightings go way, way down. And, and we in full moon, it's just the opposite of that. So there's a lot of observations they can make. And we're just trying to spur them on to, to maybe click something off in a guy's head and say, you know what, today, here's where I'm going to hunt and here's why. And that's what DeerCast was all about. It was another tool to put in your, in your pouch, so to speak, and uh, help somebody kill that next big deer. But the biggest mistake I've made is probably being complacent uh, because you can't be complacent when you're hunting mature whitetails. Yeah, like you said, never stop learning, never stop trying to improve. Um, and that's that because that's necessary, that's also a part of what makes this so much fun is the fact that there's always another move to make. There's always another challenge to try to tackle. And uh, that's what keeps me going at it, waking up every morning, getting excited about this stuff is it's uh, it's never ending. Um, and, and, and I gotta, I gotta thank you, Terry, for being, you know, such a great resource to so many people. Just like you said, the, the 90 years of experience that you and Mark bring to bear have helped a lot of folks, whether it be just through what you've shared in podcasts and, and your TV shows and DVDs and now with the app. Um, you're making a difference, and I certainly appreciate it. And for folks that want to dive into more of what you guys have got going on, whether it be the app or anything else, can you kind of point those folks in the direction where to find everything? Well, if they uh, if they go to either, if they're on an Android or an iPhone, either are, you know, you just go into the Google Play Store and, and download the app. It's free, and uh, it gives you everything Drury. There's a lot of video content on there. Mossy Oak was kind enough to, to uh, assist us and help us with some of their video content. Uh, it's got, you know, we're going to, we're expanding on all that. We've been working with the, the developer to improve it. So you're going to see a lot of improvements coming with DeerCast and, and Gen 2 and Gen 3. We're already thinking down the road three to five years. But we're just wanting to help people. And as a thank you, we wanted to give back. So that was the whole idea of the farm giveaway uh, for 30 years of being in business. We're, we're very blessed, very humbled. And uh, we're just fortunate to be in this, this line of work that we're in. Whitetails can humble you pretty readily. It goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And you never get tired of those highs. Uh, they don't come near often enough. So when you do hit one, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty refreshing. And I, you know, I don't know of anything else that gives you a feeling like harvesting a, a big whitetail or one that you've been after one that you got pictures of, uh, it, there's just nothing like it. And, and it's so infrequent that it really does hit home when you do it. And, and you go, you know what, by golly, I, I won this chess match. This was a, finally, I won the chess match. And then you go on to the next match, you yeah. know? So, um, uh, it's, it's as good as it gets. And we just want everybody to be safe. Keep that in the back of your mind. We want to make sure that they're taking some youngsters with them, getting, getting kids involved and trying to uh, teach them the right way. Be respectful of your neighbor and be respectful of the quarry that you seek. Uh, a lot of times we see that maybe that doesn't reach where it should. And we'd love to make sure that everybody respects their neighbor and the animals that they're after. Well, I don't think we could end with any better words of wisdom than that, Terry. So, uh, Really, really interesting stuff today. I really appreciate your time. And Mark, likewise. I, I always enjoy the visit with you. And uh, anytime you need something, well, I don't hesitate to holler. You better watch out what you ask for, Terry. I might be asking for a farm here soon. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Let's take a tour one day. We'll take you out there and have you look at it. I would love that. I would love that. All right, Terry. We'll talk again soon. All right, man.
And that's going to be a wrap. So uh, like we're talking about, the DeerCast app that the juries are putting together, that they've put together, is is really great resource. So highly recommend that. Not to mention this giveaway is pretty incredible too. So check it out. Join in. And on my front, if you could happen to leave a rating or review of the Wireton podcast, it would be greatly appreciated. That is a big help. It's how we are able to... Uh, bring new listeners into the fold so thanks in advance for doing that speaking of thanks if you want to pick up a wired done hat or shirt or decal you can do that by going over to themeateater.com go to their shop that's where all my gear is now that's where my new content is now too the new podcast my new articles that i'm doing videos that kind of stuff is over on themeateater.com so that out of the way just want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I want to wish you good luck if you're out there scouting or shed hunting or doing some other project. Maybe you're out there shopping for deer hunting property of your own. If you're doing any of those things, I'm hoping it's going well for you. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.